going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thanks so much to the homie capital. It is going deep with Donovan Bennett. But today's episode is all about further culture with Amanda Paris. That's right. Today I'm joined by my friend Amanda Paris, who, for those who don't know, is a frontline community worker turned writer, producer, and award-winning TV host. Her new six-part series, For the Culture, just dropped on CBC Gem, and She's constantly thinking about culture, race, and social issues, and about the role in our society, and that's exactly what you find in that series, and that's exactly what I want to listen to and learn from her about. So let's do it. Let's go deep with Amanda Paris on all things CBC's For the Culture. My name is Amanda Paris. I'm a frontline community worker turned writer, producer, and TV host. And I am constantly thinking about culture, race, and social issues. When African Americans do depictions of Caribbean people and the accents are terrible. Ay, ay, ay. For me, it's disrespectful. Yeah. To me, that's racist. <laughs> but I'm tired of the echo chambers and online beefs. So I want to push these conversations forward. We found that there was animal meat fat in plastic Wait, synthetic hair. What? I'm having like a real realization moment right now. Let's imagine new possibilities. The black dollar is the driving force in this industry. We have to infiltrate the spaces that we were left out of. We want to be modern day 21st century revolutionaries. It is a black owned product. I want it to remain that way. If somebody comes and offers you $10 million, sis, run, okay? <laughs> I don't know why I'm feeling so personal about this, but yeah, you're what? feels like you're really speaking to me. Yeah. The head's right on the perineum. What are you gonna do? I don't know. You're gonna catch the baby. I'm gonna catch a baby. You're bored. You're bored. Because now is the time to take the group chat to the real world. Your job is to find a way to live fully. Your job is to be happy, and I think that that should be prioritized. Well, let's drink to that. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Let's not get too crunk though, because we're on camera. <laughs> If we actually had access to all of our stolen wealth, can you imagine how our lives would be different? A six-part series. This is For the Culture. Well, Amanda, first and foremost, great to see you, and congratulations. Thank you. Uh, For the Culture is a beast in many ways. I know, because I am in the industry, what a beast it's like to put something together that is so honest, vulnerable, reflective, and comprehensive. But I also know that, like, it was fire. Like, it was so, so well done. <laughs> From the shots to the music to the characters mm. uh, jumped out at me. And before we even get into it, like, selfishly, I just want to take the platform to say, uh, inspired by you, uh, look up to you in the industry, uh, in awe of you, but happy for you. But let's start at the beginning. Because, like, for many of us current creators specifically, 
ones with melanin in their skin. Like, the version of what is possible does not even include a series like this. Mm. So how did you imagine it, and how did you work through the process of having it become a reality? That's a really great question. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been hosting for, I think this year will be my eighth year in the industry, and most of the shows that I've hosted are not things that I created, uh, other than Marvin's Room. Um, they were amazing opportunities, but they were sort of like these ready-made things that I kind of came into and tried to insert myself and make it my own. And uh, we were coming towards the end of CBC Arts Exhibitionist, which I hosted for six seasons and loved and was my introduction to the industry. And two executives from the CBC said, you know, we kind of feel like you've outgrown this show, like in terms of what you're interested in, your skill set that you've built. Do you have an idea for a show? And what an incredible invitation, right? Do you have an idea for a show? And I was feeling very kind of like, I don't, I don't care if you say yes to this or no. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to dream with limits. I'm just going to put it all out there, everything I wish I could do. And so the thing that I pitched is very close to what we made, you know, a show where I get to travel around the world, have conversations with black folks across the diaspora, talk about issues that are important to me and my friends and dominate our group chats, um, and have a mix of people, some of whom you, names you know and faces you know, and then others who you don't, uh, not be expert-focused, really focus on the people on the front lines. So that was really the show that I pitched. Um, and I was so shocked when they were like, yeah, this sounds, this sounds really cool. And so I think, you know, just being able to pitch something and, you know, at that point I was, I was also working on Revenge of the Black Best Friend and I was really loving the scripted world. And I was like, you know, they could say yes to this or not. I'm okay with whatever. I'm not trying to pitch what I think they're going to want. I'm just going to pitch the thing that I want to do. And I don't think that's a, an opportunity a lot of us get very often. And so I'm very grateful to that invitation to just dream without, so not to be corny, without borders and no, <laughs> boundaries. Yeah, No doubt. Well, Literally, the passport didn't have borders to get it done, <laughs> which the other thing that struck me was the level of investment. You know, if I, for those who haven't seen it yet, hurry up and, and see it on Gem. But, like, if you were to take a Lisa Ling's Our America, yes. or This Is Life, uh, that level of production, but set it, you know, from a broadcaster in Canada where, you know, much of the money is going to streamers or other big places, like, it's one thing to be able to do it. There's another thing to be able to do it at that level. Mm. How did that process come together? I mean, I think from the very beginning, I was highly inspired by exactly the shows you just named, as well as Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. And what I really love about that show was how cinematic it is. And so from my very first meetings with, you know, some of the crew that I wanted to hire, some of the DOPs that I wanted to work with, I was saying, you know, I want us to take every opportunity to be cinematic. I, what I've learned through this process is what that requires is time. You need time. And so there's so much stuff that I wish we got to do that we just didn't have the time to do because you had to, the budget was limited, right? And so um, there's even more that I wish we could do is essentially what I'm saying. But what we did get a chance to do was try to tell the story visually as well as through the interviews and the conversation. Um, and then, you know, you, Sometimes we're just lucky enough to have this incredible backdrop. Like I said, I was so tired of, you know, or not tired, but I had done so many shows where I was hosting in studio and I just wanted to be out in the world. Also should note, note that I pitched this in 2020 when none of us got to be out in the world, right? We were all locked inside. And so I think everybody was feeling that hunger. 
And I, in particular, as somebody who was pregnant at that time, was really, really feeling it. And so I wanted to be out in the world. And when you get to be out in the world and film, sometimes you don't have to do too much to make it feel impressive because the backdrop of where you're filming is impressive. So, for example, in Grenada, we had a very last-minute interview that we booked with this guy named Jab Moses in our Diaspora Wars episode, and we couldn't get a location. And then I was like, oh, wait, we're in Grenada. We could just use the beach. You know, and so he just went there early morning, checked with the sound guy. Is this going to be possible? Is it going to be too noisy? What do we need to do to make it possible? And we filmed on a low lying tree that we both sat in the branches and filmed there. And it's just the most beautiful location. And that's what I mean. You kind of stumble into the grandiosity of it by accident when you're out in the world. Shout out to that sound guy because <laughs> there are many who believe every location is too loud, right? right? If you have an air conditioning yeah. system, it is too loud. And to our sound mixers. They also worked very hard, yes. Right. <laughs> so I, I will bring this conversation rooted in sports given our yeah. show and, and stop fanboying on the <laughs> level of production. But you mentioned the Diaspora Wars episode. And one thing for me, we've got Olympics coming up yeah. in this country. And... For me, I firmly believe in my heart. I don't feel any type of way about black people, depending on where their parents were born, ancestors were born, their ancestors were stolen from, quite Mm. frankly, right? Like, if I see you, we're one. But I also am not naive to know that often there's a crabs in the bucket mentality that happens. But international competition, World Cup, Olympics, like... If you are a DSP, LSP, you have any melanin in your skin, I'm cheering for you mm-hmm. for those two weeks. What did you learn about uh, the compound interest of us thinking and believing collectively, but also like the real nuance and difference depending on your ancestry and where you're born in your relationship to colonization? I mean, I think... You know, one of the gifts of this show was wanting to have conversations with black folks about topics that affect us and all of our differences and all of our um, connections and disparities as well, you know, and not center white people in that. Like, do you know what I mean? Or whiteness in that. And I think it was such an amazing opportunity. And, you know, I feel like it's such a rarity to be able to have that platform in terms of the things that I learned. I think, you know, when I I'm thinking specifically about episodes like our education episode where, you know, we go to the United States, to Canada, to the UK, and we explore the topic of how in these three countries with three very different education systems, they all have very similar outcomes when it comes to what happens to black children when they go through their public education systems. Um, And we explore what black folks have done in the face of that, whether it's parents, uh, educators, community members and advocates and students themselves. And what we learned in that episode was that we've been employing a lot of the same strategies in very different geographical arenas to deal and combat with the racism and the systemic racism and the historic injustices that that has caused. And it was kind of beautiful because in a lot of cases that happens without us knowing that we're doing similar things. Um, There's also some differences that we can learn from each other, strategies that we can borrow. Uh, But that's always been the place that I want to come from. It's like, Where can we connect? Where are we different that we can learn from? How can we support each other? Um, And and that's really the impetus for the show. I think, you know, talking to in the Diaspora Wars episode, having that dinner roundtable 
with like a bunch of folks who are all black British folks, but they all come from very different backgrounds was so dope because, you know, for someone like Daniel Bailey, who is Jamaican, but is telling me that he's finding home in Ghana while living in London. And then talking to Bolu Babalola, who's this incredibly successful uh, black British author of Nigerian descent, who's telling me that she sees her black Britishness with the same love and intensity as she feels her Nigerianness or her Yorubaness. Like it, it was just this very beautiful opportunity to have these rich conversations about us, capital U, capital S. You know, no doubt. Um, another theme and narrative uh, in the series in that episode was Blexit, right? The black mm-hmm. exit. And it's funny, around the time where we were having a, a racial reckoning and the NBA players were in the bubble, you know, there started to be a conversation led by Kyrie Irving of, why don't we start our own league? Like, mm. do we need mm-hmm. this institution? And my reflexive response was, can you just secure the bag and not worry about starting <laughs> your own league? Like, how about we do that first? How about we just be excellent right. at our jobs? But then as I watched the episode, I started to think and challenge, well, how much of that is just my upbringing Mm. and the generation uh, of parents that we had uh, that said, like, make these people comfortable, Mm. just secure the bag and don't, you know, just try to survive. Yeah. Don't, don't do too much. And and one of the things I wrote so many notes throughout, (laughs) but uh, generational wealth and generational well-being, right? Such a good quote from Zoe Smith. Yeah. A bar. Yeah. But, but it reframing, you know, what we think of, and I've started to think, well, should our institutions, if we're using sports, for example, be better at supporting the, the black community? I feel a type of way I go to a, a sporting event and the players are, are generally black, but, you know, the shoes that they're wearing are making money for someone who doesn't look like them. You know, they might be playing black music, but their record company is making money and the mm. owner is someone who doesn't look at them. And you go on the concourse, I can't get Joel off. Right? Like the, the sub-economy is not benefiting right. the actual talent. So when you thought of um, Blexit in, in that terms of in owning our own futures, what came to mind? I mean, I think it's such an important and critical question. It comes up in that episode, but also in the next episode, our Glass Cliff episode, where we talk mm-hmm. about, um, you know, we talk to folks who are trying to change these institutions that they work within and are facing all of these structural barriers and boundaries. And then you meet someone like Gaylene Gould in this episode who chose to leave all of those institutions and kind of starts reevaluating her relationship to them and how they were changing her. And that's the thing that I wonder about, you know, and I think about myself and I think about, you know, I think it is important to change these institutions that we have invested so much into that exist because of us. Like if I'm talking about the CBC, this is a public broadcaster. My tax dollars go to it. It should reflect me. That's part of its mandate, you know? It's not a favor to me. Like this is what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but I also wonder about the effort and the the struggle to change these historically, this, these historic institutions, what impact it has on us. And, um, you know, that idea of generational wealth um, versus generational well-being is such a powerful one. And I think these ideas of creating outside of these systems or building outside of these systems, whether it's, you know, a parent deciding to pull their child out of the public education system and create their own alternative learning space, 
whether it's uh, people who are literally physically moving countries and they're like, I'm just I'm just bouncing out of this. I'm not even trying to have my child like or myself or my family deal with these realities anymore. I think these are powerful options. I'm excited about the option to dream like that, you know, as opposed to, I think, generations before who didn't even think that that was possible. I feel like our generation is like, maybe we don't have to live like this. Like, maybe we can do something else and something different. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. I just think the option to think about it is very powerful. I love you mentioned the glass clip episode because that episode for me was almost like therapy. It was like, are you, are you speaking directly <laughs> to me, right? That the the black tax that you often pay uh, in institutions of uh, all the things you have to do before being able yeah. to be creative. Uh, I, I'm sure, you know, in your time in the industry, it's something that you've experienced. I think the other thing that was a through line throughout episodes, but was really hit on in that one was the reckoning of 2020. And the amount of people... Which is when we met. That's how we met. It was right. through this reckoning. That's, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Like to, to, to bring people kind of, you know, to the forefront. Um, it, it, speaking of something that was cathartic, um, Kayla Gray. Yeah. Put Kayla together... Gray. Uh, Shout out to her. A group of uh, like-minded black individuals in the industry. Started with an IG group of just yes, conversation and sharing, you know, support links um, and became, you know, some Zoom calls, which again were therapy for me. Um, and, and at the time, I, I remember saying on, on that call, I, I actually don't want to cover this at all. Mm. There's no sports relation. Um, people are just using it. And, you know, where is that energy for Breonna Taylor or, you know, Trayvon Martin? Right, Eric Garner. You you name the person. Why is this different? Mm. Um, and um, Morgan Campbell stepped up on that call and says, "Like, oh no, no, you will cover it because mm. if, if you don't, someone else will, and they won't do it as well. And there are uh, there are clicks in these stories, and so you need to take advantage of the moment. And ultimately, there was a sports angle, but ultimately, he was right. But ultimately, it's still work. Mm. It's still work that." you have to be prepared to do. I, I wonder if corporations and institutions who at the time seemed very interested and couldn't wait to tell you that they were listening and learning. Yeah. I wonder going through this series and seeing our multidimensional experience, is everyone else still holding up their end of the bargain um, to, to support? Definitely not. <laughs> That's a really short answer. Uh, 2020 was this lightning in a bucket moment that just, but it was also the culmination, you know, of so many years of mobilization and fight and push. Um, and it kind of just exploded at this time when everyone was stuck at home and had the kind of space to observe and witness in a way that we don't generally have, which might be for, yeah, but we just, just don't generally have and to feel. You know, and then and that was, again, as I mentioned, that was the year that I pitched this show. It is coming out four years later and it feels like a completely different cultural climate. You know, there we looked at so many folks who were hired in positions of leadership uh, in 2020 and around 2020 uh, at this time of cultural reckoning. So like just slightly before and slightly after. So many black folks were hired in positions of leadership at that time, deserving black folks, black folks who have that skill set for sure. Um, and the experience necessary. 
And then we looked at how many of those folks are still in those leadership positions. And if they are still in those leadership positions, how they're doing within them. It was really, uh, hum- it, not humbling, that's the wrong word. It was really poignant to realize that so many folks have left those leadership positions in the time since, whether they've been pushed out, chosen to leave, whatever the, the situation is. So many of those corporations that were touting DEI have kind of made the quietly taken away those positions or taken the money out of those things. I think a lot of it is happening in a way that is very hard to pinpoint. So it might be just like we're doing cuts, but the cuts that are being made are specifically in those particular arenas. But it's just like we're, we have to do cuts in general. That's the economic climate that we're in. So, yeah, it's a really it's it's and it wasn't it's not surprising. I think a lot of us predicted that this wouldn't happen. This wouldn't last. Guilt is not an emotion that anyone wants to sit with for very long. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 a bit scary. It made me reflect on my own journey and. Um, how interested people, and particularly people in positions of power, how interested they're going to be in my ideas when this phase ends, you know? How, uh, yeah, how how much interest is going to be garnered by it. And I think my ideas are good no matter what the cultural climate is, but I also know that that's not how the world works necessarily all the time. So yeah, it was a, it's a very... It's a it's it's an interesting time to to see the change and to see the shift, and I think it's a scary time as well too as we see a sort of fight back against anything that is quote unquote woke, anything that is critical, anything that has a historical lens. You know, there's this sort of real push to to keep us limited in our scope and in our understanding of the world, and that's terrifying. Sounds like we need a season two. I mean, I, I agree. I would not argue with you. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of these topics and issues and how it impacts us in many ways in, in my own storytelling and, and doing a story on Nalia Chanwa, who's WNBA player, Team Canada basketball player, um, working mom now, mm. uh, who had to fight for uh, women's rights as as... It pertains to being a mom while she worked, but I also found it so interesting in her story that only because she was an athlete and she was very comfortable and familiar with advocating how she felt Mm -hmm. that she had the confidence to say in her pregnancy, no, actually, this is how things should go, so on and so forth. This is what my care should look like. When we're... at such a vulnerable position, we are thinking the experts are going to be guiding us. You touched on not just black people and our relationship with medicine, which, you know, there are many ways to go there, but specifically women um, pre and postpartum. What's struck you when you did that deep dive? Yeah, our Black Maternal Health episode is a really personal one for me because I had a lot of complications in my own pregnancy and had one particular instance where I was confronted with a healthcare provider who didn't seek my consent before doing really intrusive exams, didn't treat me like a human, spoke down to my midwife. Um, And it was really scary because I realized I was experiencing and I didn't realize it until after, but I was experiencing in real time this thing that I'd read about, the black maternal health crisis. You know, like not too long ago in um, the headlines was the story of Tori Bowie, you know, 
2016 gold medal winning Olympian. Um, her and her many of her teammates, Allison Felix, English Gardner, Tiana Bartoletta, they won gold. Three of those athletes experienced complications in their pregnancies. And one of them, Tori Bowie, ended up dying as a result of hers. And it's just, it's a story that is so common. It's tragic, um, of course. And, you know, there's, it's been documented that there is a black maternal health crisis in the United States and the United Kingdom. The reason why that episode is our least international one is because I realized that the urgent story was here. Here, we don't track race-based health statistics, health-based data. And so therefore, we cannot prove that there is a black maternal health crisis here. However, if you speak to black healthcare providers who are working on the front lines every single day, they will tell you without a doubt, there definitely is one. But without that evidence, we don't get funding, we don't get research, we don't get programs to intervene and to prevent and to disrupt this crisis. And it was really intense uh, telling these, going through this experience and speaking to healthcare providers, speaking to folks who have been pregnant, and then also tracing back all of what they're telling me back to my own personal story. I think that um, some of these topics we can intellectualize, but for the nearly everything became very personal very quickly, and this one included. And it's scary when it's life and death, you know, when it's literally our lives are on the line. Like it's one thing when we're talking about professional ambitions, when we're talking about home and belonging, but life on the line, you are at your most vulnerable. And when you hear that this story is repeated by like someone like Serena Williams, you know, the, the most, like the GOAT, you know what I mean, of tennis, it's telling you that when she was advocating for herself, they weren't listening. You realize that no matter if you have money, if you have power, if you have privilege, that race transcends all of those things in that moment when you are the most vulnerable. I think the way that we tried to approach that episode so that it didn't feel so hopeless and disempowering was to think about and to imagine, to give ourselves permission to imagine what is the standard of care necessary for black birthing people to feel safe. And that was a beautiful place to to come from. We got to speak with doulas and midwives and OBs and um, different folks who are trying to change the curriculum in schools and really imagine what is required, what is the village of care necessary for us to feel safe. And I think, you know, I hope that that episode will give folks who are thinking about, you know, bringing life into this world or in the process of it or are healing from their experiences of it, uh, a sense of the possibilities that are open to us and, and the ways that we can get there. What's frustrating is not to project my feelings onto your experience, but I'd imagine you had a midwife as a mechanism not to have that type of experience and thus you found yourself in that same spot. Yeah, I mean, I definitely had heard that you like about the difference in care between midwives and OBs. And what I learned by doing this episode is it's also just a systemic problem because I think I might get the number wrong, but OBs are expected to deliver something like 26 babies a month. That's an insane number. Uh, That means that you don't have time to give the kind of care that I was looking for for myself. Whereas for midwives, it's a much lower number. However, if you have a pregnancy that has any kind of complications or is high risk in any nature, you are no longer able to receive midwifery care. You have to have an OB. And so, you know, I think there are some systemic issues um, that have led to the, the the reality that we're in. I think that you can advocate yourself, but up until a certain point, as we know with all systemic issues, that advocacy can only go so far when you are by yourself. 
Um, so yeah, I hope that this episode pushes things in the right direction and that we at least are able to get that race-based data, which are is only collected right now in Nova Scotia and all of Canada. Well, I think the the way to combat some of that stuff is when the work is undeniable and people are incentivized by things that perform well and when they win awards. And so when you look at what has been done at the CBC of late with those um, public dollars that all people uh, pay into and all people can benefit from this story, not just black people, but certainly having our stories uplifted and told is important. Look at the run uh, that the CBC has been on, whether it's for the culture, uh, black life, mm-hmm. stories untold, which um, I-, I hope for you and, and for them, um, you know, the mantle is clear for some more awards mm. uh, as, <laughs> as you are a, a Trailblazer Award winner. Uh, and I'll even go before that in the Porter, yes. which uh, every once in a while something comes out. I believe your series will be one of those things. The Porter was where you're watching it. I'm like, all right, okay, like the game has changed. Like mm. the level is that much mm-hmm. higher. You know, I got to be about my business because, mm. you know, this is uh, before uh, Nas's first album. Now the game's changed, right? <laughs> right. This is before Wu-Tang Triumph. Now Damn. the game's changed. Yeah, we're going on to Illmatic level. Yeah, okay. for sure. Um, but, but. The Porter was that, and I believe this series will be that. I don't think that's a coincidence because in your work, in it, certainly there was uh, the spirit of your dear friend, Charles Officer. Uh, and, and he made uh, The Porter with uh, our mutual dear friend, R.T., Randall Thorne. Um, but I remiss before I let you go to not allow you to speak on um, the importance of the person and the legacy so that other stories like the one that you were telling can continue to be told. Of Charles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to articulate how huge an Im- of an impact Charles officer has had on my life. Um, he, we worked together on so many different levels. The first was he was a mentor for the remix project that I, and that was a program that I used to run for remix. Uh, he was a mentor for a diversity program that I ran for CBC before I worked at CBC that RT was a participant in and Kashmir and all these other really incredible creators, Naini, Diagaraja. Um, he, uh, I, he was, he was a, I moderated panels that he spoke on. I wrote articles about his work. And then he was also just my friend, you know? He was um, a person, we had birthdays around the same time. We'd hang out together on our birthdays and... And he made beautiful art that moved me, that changed me, that made me realize, oh, my God, like, this is something that I could be doing. Uh, my, the first sound mix I ever sat in on was with him on a short film that he was working on. Um, and I'd never even thought about the sound in a film until that moment, you know. He would invite me to the sets of the things that he was working on all the time. He would was open to read every pitch, every idea, every everything that I was working on. And then... You know, of course, we got to finally work together uh, creatively first when he directed me in a play that I acted in in my previous life as an actor, Anima Spot, and then later when he directed a play that I wrote uh, called The Death News. And I still have a really hard time reconciling with the fact that he's not here because he's so much a part of the world as I understand it, my creative world, my professional world, and my personal world. He was so passionate in an unapologetic way about the stories that he wanted up front, 
the people that he thought needed to be centered, um, the way that he was going to portray those stories with each frame being so beautifully constructed and thought out. He was unapologetic about demanding the kind of funding that was deserving, that those stories deserved. Um, I had an executive when he passed tell me, you know, he was so lovely to work with, even if he never took any of my notes. <laughs> and I just love that because he was just so stalwart about his vision, you know, and um, yeah, I just, I still can't believe that he's not here, but I'm so grateful that he created so many beautiful pieces so that not only the public can see them forever and know him, but that's, that his son, Sela, can also grow up and know his father as well, too. Um, yeah, I loved him so much. I love him so much, and I'm completely heartbroken that he's no longer with us. No question. We all are. Uh, you know, I, I love clothes. And it, as I mentioned in the series, there's so many. And there's one, as I was jotting them uh, down while watching them, there's one I wrote down that, to me, embodies him and the legacy of his work, and that was affirmed, not tolerated. Mm. Uh, and Another so, Zoe Smith quote, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so it was great. And, and the, the, the body of work that you put together um, certainly was great. You know, it's one thing for us to shine a light on these s stories because, you know, sunlight can be their greatest disinfectant. It's one thing to educate and to intellectualize about them, but... Um, you found a way to really humanize uh, the stories and our both our struggle and our triumph um, it, so that we all can maybe internalize them and make different choices in our life. So once again, thank you. Thank you. And congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks once again to Amanda Paris. So much good work from her as a creator and a showrunner. She mentioned Revenge. Of the Black Best Friend, make sure you check that out. Also streaming on CBC Gem. She's also the writer and director of The Death of the Doula. But what you have to add to the top of your queue, based off of what I've seen and what you just heard, is For the Culture with Amanda Paris, which is on CBC Gem. A brand new show exploring topics affecting Black Canadians and Black communities around the world as I mentioned, you can stream all six episodes of For the Culture with Amanda Paris for free right now on CBC Jump. Please like, favorite, share, and subscribe. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening.